Hi, this is Nancy Herald, and welcome to my show, High Road to Humanity. In every episode, I tell you powerful true stories filled with great wisdom that you can use in your own life as you strive for a higher road to travel. My featured guests will have their own unique stories to tell that enlighten your mind and your soul. So kick back, relax, and learn the secret to success when you take the high road. Hi, this is Nancy Urell, and welcome to High Road to Humanity. And I have Christopher Smith here today. He's an MD, and welcome, Chris, to High Road to Humanity. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm really excited that you're here. Uh, before I bring him on, I just want to talk a little bit about some current events. But to kind of preface this, Chris, you know, has written a cool book called Homeless to Hopkins. And he, um, it's to give hope and inspiration through his testimonial of one's ability to preserve and overcome. Uh, it's a written validation of the power of the human will. And it's a labor of love. And it's a really terrific book. So all the proceeds from this book, by the way, um, are going to go to a scholarship program for disadvantaged youth. So you're going to want to stay in tune for the show today. I want to talk about, this is High Road to Humanity. I'm going to turn down my mic. Sometimes I get a little loud and people are like, Nance, you're too loud. Um, the thing is, I, I can't not say anything about what happened yesterday with Trump going into New York and all of that. And I just want to say, you know, I'm really concerned about our country and everything. And I want to acknowledge, you know, it was a sad day yesterday. I actually got teary-eyed when I saw this. It was emotional. I was like, God, this is like crazy. This our country has gotten so crazy. And, you know, we've always stood up for democracy and everybody's innocent to proven guilty. Now, let me just say, I don't think it's too cool what Trump did, but that's like between him and his wife. You know what I'm saying? And all this stuff that they're bringing out has really been horrible. And I just hate that whatever side you're on, I always try to stay in the middle. Uh, I want you to know that I thought it was a difficult situation. I did pull this up from um, Fox. It says Democrat voters torch brag for trap for tragic Trump indictment as crime soars worst prosecutor in America. It says Democratic voters are pushing back against Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg over the indictment of Donald Trump as he continues to face bipartisan scrutiny surrounding the strength of his case against the former president. And they're saying that his case isn't very strong and we'll just hang in there and see what happens. But, you know, everybody keep an eye on what's going on. Don't get crazy out there. Just keep the faith, you know, and know that I believe God always prevails. You know, don't you think? What do you think? Absolutely. I want to hear your opinion. On, I mean, you don't have to get political. I try not to, but I have to say something about what happened yesterday. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think God's always in charge. It's his planet. You know, he's in charge of everything. So we'll see what whatever happens. happens, whatever happens, you know, I don't want to politically come out and say whether I believe it or not, but it's tragic when our country is so divided over such issues that we can't, there's such kind of animosity between both sides. That they, there's such venomous discord. They can't sit down and sit down and discuss, you know, like sit down over, you know, a drink and just talk normal you know rather than have like such hatred and you know discord you know right. it's just it's sad to see our country in that state well yeah we got to get back to that and here i'm doing the show and you're writing books about you know how we can uplift ourselves and it's such a clear divide right now it's really interesting it's almost well i always say it's down to good and evil it really is it's kind of crazy anyway <laughs> I will. I want to bring this up too. I pulled this off the internet this morning, and I just want to mention there's been so much, uh, so many tornadoes lately, and I didn't even realize. So the headline reads: This comes from CNN. Multiple multiple fatalities in Missouri after a reported tornado prompts a search and rescue mission. Officials say, and I'll just read this quickly: A destructive storm system that is already spawned at least 10 reports of tornadoes and killed multiple people in Missouri, now threatens 80 million Americans with dangerous weather on Wednesday. And today is, what is today? Thursday? Wednesday? Thursday? Wednesday. 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 
Nancy's got her days messed up. That's really crazy. Anyway, multiple deaths and injuries have been reported after a possible tornado struck in um, Bollinger County, Missouri. So um, the exact number of casualties is not clear because reports are still coming in, they said um, this morning. And I just wanted to mention that and God bless the people. Um, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, uh, I think, go ahead. My sister-in-law lives in Arkansas and Right. They had a tornado warning the other day. They had to stay in the show in their uh, basement for hours with their kids because of tornado warning. It, it hit just not far from them, probably ten miles away. So it's it's very scary when that kind of happens. But things like that. I know, you know, Christopher. I I have my own ideas on why this is happening. I I'm, but we won't get into Nancy's conspiracy theories on the weather. But they're sure tearing up a lot of a lot of tornadoes coming across America. Tearing up the infrastructure is what I see. I also want to say, uh, Christopher, that you are a best-selling author and you are a former homeless person and you're a board-certified practicing physician. Um, you completed your residency and fellowship as the world-renowned John Hopkins Hospital, and you dedicate your time and resources to raising awareness of homeless children and finding sources to help. You've written this book, Homeless to Hopkins. Um, it's one of the best, amazing stories I've ever read. Please um, tell your story. Okay, so... Most of my life growing up, I was um, lived in poverty. Um, our housing was usually pretty much inadequate most of the time. There were months at, at a time we lived without electricity or basic utilities such as gas. And so I grew up studying over candlelight. In today's world, I know it's unusual, but I grew up studying over candlelight and warming our bath water over a fire and cooking our food over a fire. And moving numerous, numerous times, evicted, I can't even tell how many times, uh, at least a dozen to two dozen times at least. So you were six, up. you were six of 11 children. I want to exactly here. Okay. Yes, I just, I was just so six you... of 11 children. So yeah. yeah. Right. And your parents, so, yeah. tell about your parents. What, why did this situation occur? What happened? So my mother, I think suffers from some undiagnosed mental, um, mental illness, whether that's a bipolar or borderline or narcissistic combination of all the above. And so she suffers from that. And my father has always been a dreamer. So my father was a dreamer and an inventor. So when he was, when I was about four or five, he lost his job at the steel mill. And from that point on, he never really worked a regular job. His idea was to create some invention and hit it big, you know, become like Elon Musk or somebody, you know, you know, in today's terms, you know, this, yeah. this super rich inventor. So he never really worked a regular job. And so he would do odd jobs or honestly, he took advantage of people sometimes, you know, like kind of a um, schemes and things like that. And yeah. so, because of that, our, they've struggled financially. And then when I was nine, my uh, younger brother drowned in the ditch. He was a year and a half old. I know. I read that, Sam. And tell, do you mind tell, what, tell the story of what happened, if you don't mind? You guys were all in the house. You were playing some video games. Yeah, playing an Atari game. Yeah, you know, like, you know, Atari was big back then. Yeah. So playing Atari game, and we looked around, and my little brother was not there. He was, And he was, what, two at the time, I think, maybe? Not quite two, yeah. He was like eight, 19 months old, 20 months old, something like that. Right. And so we looked around, we couldn't find him. We thought maybe he was just being like a toddler. It had hidden somewhere, you know, like toddlers do, playing or whatever. And then we spent a, quite a while looking for him. And then my parents realized that something was wrong. And so then they called the police and they brought the dogs. And the dogs ran down to an irrigation ditch behind my house and um, jumped in. And then my father went down to the ditch. So my dad went down to the ditch. He realized what was wrong. And so he, rather than wait for the police, he jumped in the water and reached under the bridge and found the body of my brother. And pulled him out and to this day I can still see I was watching from the deck I was only nine years old and I can still to this day see them pulling his body out kind of limp hanging by you know pulling up by one leg and his arms and legs kind of drooping and dripping you know hanging there limply as they pulled him out and from that point on after that my parents struggled even more because the loss of a child is devastating I can't imagine how that would be and I know and my father blamed himself for years. Why? Because he, he was, my little brother was helping him build something. Like he was building a wood thing or a deck or something on the house. Right. And my little brother, I found this out later. My little brother was handing him the nails and things like that. You know, he's working with him, working with his dad. Right. And he turned around and he was gone. So he felt like he should have. Went and looked um, for him. Went and looked for him and. Yeah, he blamed himself, and 
And I know my mother always, she said some things at the time, you know, just thinking, you know, just speaking out loud was, uh, you know, suffering under grief. And, you know, I remember saying, you know, we, she yelled to all of us kids, you know, you should have been watching him. It's your fault. And when you're a kid, you internalize that. And I know it wasn't my fault as a kid. I know things just happen now, you know, as an adult, but as a kid, I actually blamed myself for many, many years of that thing as well. Yeah. And you can't do that. You know, I want to, I want to read something that I want to take this back a little bit. I want to read something that you wrote in the very beginning of the book. You talk about scars. This really hit me. And you say, these are my scars. I share them with you so that you may use them to have hope, hope for a better life, hope for a happier life and strength, strength to live your dream and reach for the stars. I thought that was beautiful. Well, thank you. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, the ideas of scars, because we all get these wounds as we grow up in life, you know, mm-hmm. whether or not they're the, the deepest wounds, we never really share or show with people very often. You know, those those wounds that kind of fracture our, our souls, break us, you know, kind of cause us to be broken. Mm-hmm. But once we're able to kind of face those fears and wounds and kind of work through them, then we can, then they become scars. They become strong and they become, you know, like a badge, like a badge of honor that we can wear saying, you know, I overcame these battles in my life, these quote demons, you know, these, these things mm-hmm. in my life that I overcame. And when we share that past with others, that past is no longer painful. Now it has a purpose in our lives. It becomes much less painful, but we can see it from a different point of view saying yeah. that past made us stronger. Yeah. made um, us who I, we are. Yeah, exactly. I like the idea of that Japanese um, art where they take broken pottery and fix it with gold. You know, afterwards, it's stronger and more beautiful than it was in the first place. I like that. I like that. You know, I want to go back a little bit. You um, grew up in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Is that correct? That is correct. Now, I have a question. Why did you not like when people, why don't you like to be called Mormon? um it's just it's a nickname um, okay i didn't know that it's a nickname yeah it's so the actual okay. name of the church is the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints right and we believe in a book of scripture called the book of mormon right um mormon was just a prophet it's nothing else he was so the book of mormon basically is a book of scripture of the inhabitants of the americas mm-hmm. who wrote of their dealings and beliefs with god and jesus christ right um the idea basically like the old the old and new testament the bible took place in um the uh, middle east and you know middle eastern countries they had prophets and things like that in their dealings with god and the book of mormon is the same idea basically, but rather than in the Middle East, it's in the Americas, North and mm-hmm. South America, and the indigenous people that were here. So, well, but while you were growing up, and, and I'm the reason I'm bringing this up is your connection with God, because you're a kid. And you and I want to understand this, because I'm really amazed at your connection with the divine after everything you went through, because there were different times during your childhood that and you talk about when you were 12 and you thought about committing suicide. I mean, there was different times where you, you know, um, talk about God in the book. So did you grow up going to church or where did you get that? Where did it come from? I guess I want to okay, know. Yeah. You know so what I mean? Great, yeah. Great question. Great question. So, yes, actually, I did grow up going to church. My parents would take us to church okay. and and we would attend church. And um the idea of god was kind of instilled in me from an early age you know okay. the, the the idea that there was a god out there for us okay and so growing up and when i was going through those difficult times there are times that i questioned whether god existed or not you know as most people do at some point in their lives yeah. and more importantly i i also questioned whether god even cared about me you know mm-hmm. as a kid you know, I questioned whether or not God was there and whether he even cared, you know, whether he listened to me. Mm-hmm. But I know when I was sleeping in the truck, when I was 16 and 17, I didn't have a cell phone or any other entertainment at the time. So I would look at the stars and I would talk to God. I would have mm-hmm. kind of conversations with God. And at that point, it kind of instilled in me that, yes, God was there. I remember one night I just felt like a warm embrace that, you know, that even though I was in this bad situation by that time it was going to be okay almost like god gave me a hug at that time to mm-hmm. you know keep reassure me that yeah. keep me going yes exactly 
So yeah, you talk about, I just, you know, I want to talk about some of these things. You talk about the hotels that you stayed in and these seedy hotels and all, I mean, and going to the prom, I mean, all of that was, had to be really difficult. It was difficult. It was difficult. I would, I had this kind of dual life. I was this honor roll student, high honor student. I know. I know. High achieving sports, student body government, all this stuff. But then at the same time, I was homeless sleeping in a car, you know. Mm-hmm. And so when I would do things like go to prom and things like that, it was kind of my idea to have some more normal kind of life experiences. Mm-hmm. And I, the thing is, actually, I never shared or asked for help with from people, which is probably looking back, I wish that I would have asked for more help. But I was... um kind of taught from early age to fear everybody to keep it all inside to not share to um you know protect yourself that everybody was always out to get you that everybody's going to use you and everything like that well christopher because i want to talk about this because you know i I thought about this yesterday you sent me you've also written a children's book and it's fabulous you guys and i just we'll talk about that a little bit more but it really raised the question that In today's society, and I'm not an expert on this, but I think a lot of people fear, and your mom and dad probably did back then, if you would have said something to somebody, they would have come and taken you from her and from your dad. What do you think about that? I wanted to ask you that question, because in one way, you want to stay with your parents, but they're homeless, and you want to stay with all your siblings, but yet you're homeless, but that you don't say anything, but if you did it would have become a problem. And I just wanted to address that and find out your thoughts. Yeah, it's a very difficult situation, especially for a kid to be in, you know, like Mm -hmm. a 12 or 13 year old kid to try to navigate that kind of situation. Mm -hmm. And one of the things as a kid I felt was were two things, real isolation and being invisible. Um, I felt invisible, but I also was able to become invisible because of those reasons. I was able to kind of just go along and skirt along and kind of not raise any attention or anything like that. And the difficulty is though, I actually wish that I would have gone for help just because the state may or may not take your, you know, may take or may or may not take your children. Most likely they'll try to work with the parents to try to get them through whatever situation. Like in my case, I wish we would have asked for help say to get like state assistance for, um, food or housing or for housing yeah that's what I would have in the beginning like if your mom and dad would ask because then it came to a point where you just got kicked out and and your mom and I don't mean that this is a there's a lot in this book you guys but your mom ends up going to Idaho I think and your dad goes to jail yes so when Which I was seventeen, crazy. This is crazy. I'm like, how do you even deal with this, man? So I was only seventeen. So I was working at a restaurant, a buffet restaurant. And yeah. My my little brother calls me up in the middle of my shift, saying, "My father, he was he was like ten years old. My father had been arrested. My mother was going to go kill herself." I know. And at seventeen, that's a real lot of weight to take on for a seventeen year old. It's for anybody. But yeah. So I came back and they were gone. My my father was in jail. My mother went, eventually she was admitted to mental facility and then she took off up to Idaho. And I was left basically on my own at 17 with a pair of pants, two, two shirts and about $20 to my name. Because I'd been giving all my money to my parents to help them out with the food and things like that for my siblings. So they mm-hmm. would have food. So yeah, 17, I was left on my own. So so what you do? You were staying at uh, aunt and uncle's house at the time, right? I did. I briefly stayed at my aunt and uncle's house, but then I called up my sister. I had an older sister who's about 10 years older than me. Okay. And she was my knight in shining armor. She was my savior. She was. So I called her up and said, hey, I don't have anywhere to go. She knew some of the situation. And she said, she allowed me to come stay and sleep on her couch. She had two young kids, so didn't have a lot of room in her house mm-hmm. and things were tight, but she brought me in and basically allowed me to stay there and, and you yeah and you got a scholarship too I want to say this I did I got a presidential scholarship which was actually the top scholarship the university offered when I graduated high school unbelievable so, and you were homeless I was so I want to go back just a couple things that you talked about before we get into you becoming a doctor a physician you know you talk there's a story I I don't want to make light of it but it was kind of crazy. 
at one point when you were younger, your parents decided they're going to take you to Disneyland. That was yes. crazy. Do you want to tell? <laughs> I mean, I kind of giggle because it was like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my parents would sometimes do random things like that. Like, yeah. so when I, I can't remember what it was, but basically they, they came and said, we're going to go to Disneyland and drive there from where I lived in Utah. It's maybe 12, 16 hour drive, something like that. Oh, yeah. Um, and we broke down in Beaver, Utah. Now, if you know anything about Utah, Beaver, Utah is this tiny town out in the middle of nowhere and there's nothing around there. And so we never made it Disneyland. We broke down there and we stayed there until the car got fixed, used all any money we had to fix the car. And then we came home. That's so. crazy. The, another crazy thing that I thought that your dad did, and I'm going to ask about your mom and dad and how they're doing, but one thing, your mom and dad pick you up, you're waiting for them. I don't know if it was a sports event or something after school and it's a, uh, they're buying a car. Yeah. So that was, that, that was, was crazy. Very, I was like, was Oh my God. <laughs> tell that so that was surreal so we were homeless we were actually living in the motel at the time and so my parents obviously had zero credit and no jobs I was the only one working and they came pick me up after school because I didn't have a car right then mm -hmm. and um rather than go back to the motel we went to a car dealership to supposedly buy a car and I just thought what in the world is going on here you know at 17 clearly I realized there was a problem with that that neither of them were working and they didn't have a credit. And so how were they going to get a car? So what were they doing? They were just wasting time or just. They were wasting time. So I found out later that basically the motel, they hadn't paid the bill. And so they locked the doors on the motel, oh, that's locked right. us out. And so they were doing that to buy time. But I'm thinking rather than to waste your time in a car dealership, wouldn't it be more effective to either go work or go work with a hotel to try motel to figure out some arrangements so you can get your stuff back, you know? And that's a lot of times that's the way they do with their lives. They never actually took accountability or um, mm -hmm. approach to resolve the problem. Like this whole time, why didn't we just move into like a small apartment and, right. you know, why were you at a hotel? That was the weirdest thing. I, you know, I got to tell you, your book was really inspiring and I didn't get to read the whole thing, but I want to, say one other this is coming up on easter you guys it's good friday you know coming up and this really hit me you said in the book when you're talking about god you said and scars and you said god sent his son to suffer maybe there was something to be learned by suffering it made me realize i was meant for bigger goals and achievements and you became grateful for the small things yeah the little things in life like just amazing being yeah yeah, it's just, it changes your perspective. The, like the things that a lot of teenagers and things like that worry about now, it's, or take for granted, they take for granted. I was worrying about, I had people ask me like, what was my life like in high school? Did I date or whatever? I'm like, uh, no, I was just trying to survive. I was trying to eat, try to find a place to live, try to work, you know? And so right. those little things such as just a warm meal or just having a kind smile matter everything in the world. Right. So when you got your scholarship and you went to college, talk about that. Why did you decide you wanted to be a doctor? So I went to college. I wasn't I didn't really know what I was going to do when I first started college. Mm -hmm. And my freshman year, I actually worked full time, you know, 40 plus hours and did like 17, 18 credits a semester, which was too much. You know, I took like calculus and chemistry, you know, hard classes. Yeah. And so at the end of the year, I ended up with a 3.45 GPA. Oh. To keep the scholarship, you had to have a 3.5 GPA. So I was 0 0.05. Oh, my gosh. My scholarship. So I, I lost my scholarship. So after that, I was completely lost. I didn't know what to do. So, you know, I made some bad choices a few times, you know, like most people, and they're kind of walling, self-medicating and, you know, doing something. So I went, had a big party and drank a bunch of stuff just so I could stop thinking. But when I woke up from that... I realized this is not how I want to live my life. This is not what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And so what I did for then, I decided I was going to be a missionary. Like you said, I was a member of the Church of Jesus Christ. So I went and served a mission, you know, like the little black name tags, mm -hmm. you know, white shirts, name tags. I'm sure you've seen them around. Yes. Um, in Southern California in the Spanish uh, barrios, meaning like the really kind of rough Spanish neighborhoods. I know. That was yeah. crazy. Talk about that. So it, they're, they're, they're amazing, wonderful people I met there. And 
but there were some pretty scary experiences too. I saw a couple drive-by shootings, like very close to one, like as in like 20 feet away from us, we were sitting there and a car drove past and all of a sudden they slowed down and they started shooting at the house, like across the street. And then the house, the guy in the house started shooting back at them. Oh it was gosh. like a, like <laughs> a real old, old West shootout. Right. Yeah. You know, so we go in, in the McCoys. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that's exactly what happened. So, and then I saw some other things, you know, some drugs and things like that, but we actually worked a lot with kids and gangs, you know, like teenagers or just like our age. And we would, we had no problem going up and talking to gang members because the Latino people that it was mainly Latino people, meaning like Mexican or Guatemalan immigrants or wherever they're from, mm-hmm. we would go and talk to them. Most of them are raised Catholic. So they have some respect, respect for God. And so they kind of left us alone and actually listened to us quite a bit wow. when we talked to them. Yeah. And more importantly, the, the people there were so kind and giving, they would give us, they had very little food or, or you know, um, temporal means, but they were willing to give and share what they had with us. Mm-hmm. And so that experience changed me in the fact that rather than see the world negatively, I changed, saw the world positively, that there were yeah. a lot of very good, kind, wonderful people in the world that not everybody's out to get you. You know, these people do did good things for us just to be nice, to be kind. And that changed my perception. It changed me from seeing things negatively to 180 degrees positive. That's true. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I can remember going down to Mexico for the first time. I know this sounds, it's exactly what you're talking about. I went down there on a vacation, but what I saw were the happiest kids with no shoes, hardly decent, you know, clothes on or, uh, decent place to live and they were the happiest kids and the happiest people I had ever seen and I yeah, thought and the this most is kind nuts gen- yes kind and like, genuine people ever yes exactly and we when you have too much it just goes to show when you have too much it's like we it's a balance you can't have too much and you can't have too little just enough is fine you know what I mean exactly exactly yeah I don't know. So t- how did you decide? So then you decided you wanted to go to medical school at that point? So what? no, then no, not yet. So then I, I left from there. I came back and I um, enrolled in a college in Idaho State. It's in Pocatello, Idaho. Okay. Little tiny um, Pocatello. Anyway, I went to Idaho State. And so mom and dad there. are there? Mom and dad are there? They, they moved up to Idaho and my older brother had moved there as well. So he okay. was in a graduate uh, graduate program there. And so he said, hey, you can come here and we'll try to, you know, get you some opportunity. So I went there and I rolled in school and then I met my wife. My first class was, um, I had a class and I met my wife. And so, well, future wife at that point, but mm-hmm. so we became friends and started dating and, um, that's awesome. And we got married. And once I met her, I felt like I was complete. I felt like most of my life I was kind of missing a part of myself that mm-hmm. I was missing something. But once I met her, I felt complete. And more importantly, had somebody who loved me, for me yeah yes yeah love me unconditionally for me and just accepted me and that was huge and so then I was an undergraduate I was initially debating between going into genetics versus medicine or chemistry and there was a master's a combined master's and bachelor's program I went with my chemistry professor Mm -hmm. and they said and she said well you asked me my future plans where I was saying it's considered doing medical school. She's like, go to medical school. Don't waste your time doing chemistry. Just go to medical school. So at that point I decided I was going to go to medical school and go to medicine. So. And then how did you end up at John Hopkins? So I applied uh, to the university of Utah and was accepted there. I don't remember the exact rates, but they're not, it's not a high, it's a fairly difficult to get into. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got into University of Utah. When I was there, I graduated with um, honors or high honors in my class, kind of top ten percent of my class. Awesome, and, good um, for you. Well, thank you, thank yeah. you. Yeah, it's, and then so I applied to Johns Hopkins. So Hopkins is a elite institution, yes. and for my particular program, literally, it's less than one percent chance of getting accepted. Mm-hmm. There were 800 applicants for six positions in my special. Oh my goodness! Did you pray on that one? I did. Yes, actually a lot. And, yes. And speaking of that, so, and I was accepted and see, I don't think it was through me. I think there was some divine influence that helped me get there because I can't take credit for that because the odds were so slim 
to think of uh, me being a kid sleeping in a truck at 16, ending up at Johns Hopkins as a physician and then faculty is the odds are so stratospherically high that it'd be equivalent for me trying to get to the moon. Do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. you know, the same kind of odds. Yeah. And so yeah. I look back and I see it kind of as some divine intervention helping me along to get there. Mm-hmm. So. Well, and that goes back to what you talk about your, your scars and, and, you know, how it's interesting how you refer back to Jesus and what he went through and, you know, people go through so much here. I know we're here to learn, but to see your resilience and to see you bounce back, you know, and that's so motivating for people to see. And now you're giving back. Talk about that because I want to talk about this and I want to hear about what you're doing, but you know, recently I've been talking on the show. It's funny you would come on the show, but it's always God's intervening here. I've been talking about the homeless for a while. I had moved to Arizona and I couldn't believe the amount of thousands of people are homeless on the street in Phoenix, just where I'm at. And I'm in a small town um, up in the mountains, but there's homeless people here. And there are so many homeless children that are in school, but they're homeless, same situation. And I saw that on the news recently. It's really odd that we would have this meeting you and I, because it was just recently that I saw this, that there's such a huge population of kids that don't have a home. And I know you're doing work. So can you talk about what you're doing and what you're- There are, yeah. So homeless children and families are kind of the invisible homeless, because as you say, they try to keep it quiet. And every single school district across the U.S., if you talk to the leaders, I guarantee you there are hundreds to thousands of kids in their school system that are homeless that they know about. I just spoke at, um, so what things that I'm doing. So what I'm doing is I actually try to participate in fundraising for groups that are working with homeless. Um, I just spoke at the uh, Palm Beach County Mayor's Ball in Florida. They're raising money for the uh, Palm Beach County Homeless Coalition. And I know when they spoke, they had in their school district, which Palm Beach County is a very uh, fairly affluent um, county in America. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, that's where all these people have house. That's where Mar-a-Lago is actually, Palm Beach County, Florida. Right, West and, Palm Beach. My sister lived there, so I've been, yes. Yeah, so, yes, you know, Bill Gates has house there. Those, yeah. are, you know, it's very affluent. So, yes. anyway, they have thousands of homeless children in their school district. And That's so- crazy. That is just crazy. And like, it's just, I don't even know what to say. And where, see, where's the money? That's the whole thing. I don't want to get on a whole soapbox and interrupt your three chain of, thought here but it's like all these people have all this money why can't we build homes or is it education what do you feel is the answer to this situation that we're so in i right think now? i think a couple things so education which you said i think education is the key to kind of breaking that cycle of poverty for me education was the key i mean it brought me up and actually i didn't, i left this out but in my in my family actually six of us went along and earned doctorate degrees six oh out gosh. of eleven of us. oh my gosh so um desperation is a motivator i guess you could say so um but education if you can get some type of job training or education whether it's like hvac or electrical and plumbing you know whatever even not necessarily go to college but some kind of training will allow those people to be able to afford to live better you know to yes and so especially for kids, the important thing for kids is to stay in school and get their education. You know, don't drop out to help pay for your parents. Yes, you can, they can stay and, you know, work, but they need to stay in school because that's what will change their lives, that education. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you said something and I don't want to, I just want to say it before you move forward. Um, this is something that I really think that we should change and get back in the schools. When I went to school, there was woodworking, there was, mechanic machine shop right there were all these different there was like a cooking I mean there were all these different things sewing there were all these different things that you could take there were all these different classes that you could take now they don't have it like it's vocational is what it is it's what you're talking about it's becoming an electrician or a plumber or a woodworker or a builder or whatever but they used to have that in school and somehow those programs have been lost did you have you noticed this too yeah, a lot of schools are moving away from that. Some schools, like where um, where I live now, they um, they have some of those programs still. They okay. the kids can can do like a nursing assistant program when they graduate from high school. They have their nursing assistant okay. um, degree. Some schools are starting to work into that again. 
And I know some school districts also have like a vocational high school. Where we lived in Pennsylvania, they had a separate vocational high school if kids wanted to go and learn these other trades. And so my feeling is any education is good. Whether that, if you think you're going to go for college, go to college, great. Get as much education as you can, get a doctorate if you can, master's, whatever. But even if college is not, you know, in your, feel like it's in your, um, your wheelhouse or what you want to do, get some training, get some skill set, mm-hmm. get some education, whether that could you join the military, you could um, become an electrician. Electricians make good money. I know when I have the electrician come work on stuff in my house, we pay them good money. Same with a plumber. Plumbers make good money, mm-hmm. you know, and those are great jobs. Just whatever it is, whatever job, any skill set you can get will improve your life, you know, your, your, uh, your life, the, the ability yeah. for you to earn. No, you're right. I was a real estate broker for years. Single mom. I raised my kids, single mom, raised my kids, sent them to college and doing real estate. And, you know, so you're exactly right. And everybody doesn't have the opportunity, you know, to get a scholarship or to go to college, but it's nice to have a trade, you know, like my youngest daughter, I sent her, uh, she went to school and she didn't want to go to college, but I sent her to um, school to have beauty school, you know, so she could do hair. Now she runs a company, but she does hair on the side and that's okay. But I think I was just like, I want to make sure they have a skill. I think that's the exactly. biggest thing. Yeah. yeah. A skill, some niche, something that you can do. And yeah. college, even if you don't get a scholarship, you can still get through college. Like I lost my scholarship. So I put myself through college the last part of it through grants and working and you just, and the thing is you have to have the mindset. Okay. X number of years, two years from now, I'm going to be two years older, regardless of, you know, two years are going to pass. Five years is going to pass. So I can either stay where I am or I can shoot for the stars and do something differently in two years. I can have my associate's degree or finish my bachelor's or get my realtor agent license, you know, whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. you have to decide that even, that time is going to pass. So you have to decide what you're going to do with that time. Yeah. So, well, I'll tell you what, I just think your story is amazing. Now you said six of the siblings have gone on. How is everybody doing? How's mom and dad? How do you guys get together? Okay. Um, so my dad passed away actually in 2006 oh, I'm sorry. and my mother, my mother struggles. Let's just say mm-hmm. that. So my mother struggles. After my dad passed away, she struggled. She blew through whatever um, life insurance money she had very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. I actually ended up buying a condo that she could live in. Oh. Um, she lived there for about 10 years, and she recently moved out in um, during last year or the year before when my, my daughter needed a place to stay. So my daughter moved into there. But I paid for this condo for 10 years for my mother to live in so she'd have somewhere to stay. But that now was- she has her own place. Thank you. Thank you. Now she has her own place and she's uh, married to a gentleman now. And, but they, they struggle. I, I want to go into details, but that's okay. Really, really quick story is so after my father passed away, I got an email from my mother. Um, this doesn't even sound real. It sounds like some movie. I got an email from my mother saying she went to Las Vegas and eloped at a Buddhist temple to a guy she met. So, like I said, it doesn't even sound real. It sounds like something from The Hangover, right? Or some movie, right? You know? Yeah, it does. I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh. I'm just like, seriously? Were you like, really, mom? This is what you did. That was her way of dealing with it. Exactly. I'm like, oh, my gosh. At least call, you know, or text, <laughs> not an email, you know? Oh, my God. I love it. I love it. Well, do you see your siblings? Or do you guys get together so, at all? Or So my siblings, it's interesting because we didn't talk about our lives growing up. You know, right. and so me writing this book, actually, I shared with my older siblings, and it's the first time we've ever sat down and talked about our lives growing up. Oh, my god! And for my older, my older brother and sister, they said it was actually very therapeutic to actually be able to sit down and do that. And they felt like this way and relief. So we occasionally get together, you know, still get to, you know, occasionally, like, you know, for a family reunion or something in the summer. But um, yeah. the, we're still kind of fractured, you know what I mean, because of just division and just tension and things, you know, just, it's just kind of, when you grow up like that with, um, my mother can be difficult as far as like manipulation and things like that. Sure. And so, yeah. Narcissistic. So of, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's yeah. caused a lot of fracturing between siblings. Um, 
stuff that shouldn't be because my siblings are actually really wonderful nice kind people they've never done anything against each other but some of them have difficult feelings towards the other one not because of anything they've done but because of things that my mother has said or manipulated manipulation that's what narcissists do that's the whole exactly that's their game that's how they play they always have one or two kids if you and then if you don't agree you're not in the group exactly so me writing this book and things like that my mother is not very happy about that because she wanted she tried to keep things quiet to have this image of oh you know this perfect family or things like that but the thing is everybody actually already knew about it she just thought they didn't know about it you know Mm. so but i didn't write it for that reason the reason i wrote my book was actually just to be an inspiration for people you know saying whoever whatever circumstance you're going through you can have a good life you can you know find happiness and find joy and that's ultimately kind of the message of my book that as Mm -hmm. you struggle like now I have five wonderful daughters. I have two sons-in-law. My my wife, we've been married for 27 years now. Oh my, my gosh. Am, my wife's amazing, you know, amazing person. Awesome. So, um, That's awesome. You know, we adopted our two oldest daughters and we had three biologicals. So I have five daughters and no grandkids yet, but, you know. You will, yeah. But I have happiness. I have joy in my life. I can smile, you know, I can enjoy the sunset. And that's the point of my book is whatever you're going through at some point, you know, there's still a lot of good in the world that you can have that good. You can enjoy, even if things are tough, you know, we can still all go enjoy the sunset. Even if you have the worst day ever, mm-hmm. you can go outside and see the sunset and say, you know, it's okay. God still loves us, loves the world. He gave us this beautiful sunset. You know, we can, mm-hmm. you know, it's life will be okay eventually. Yeah. You know? It's a new day. Every day is a new day. You can start exactly. over. Yeah. You can exactly. start over. What an inspiration. So tell me, since the book has been out, I mean, any, I'm sure it's inspired people. I'm sure, has it helped some homeless? I have, you know, what's going on with this? Anything that you want to share or before we leave today? So I know I've gotten multiple messages saying they inspired them. I actually sent um, several copies to different homeless shelters and things like that to share with their, um, cool. the people that are there, you know, just free. I just sent it free and um, yeah. donated to them. And I'm speaking more and more now with groups kind of telling about homelessness and the idea of, you know, what they can do to help. Like I spoke at the Palm Beach um, County Mayor's Ball and it was fabulous because the people, you know, everybody was quiet during speaking, kind of very focused on me. And afterwards, several of them say, hey, you just blew me away. I just can't, you know, your feelings and things, it just hit me like I can't, you know, I feel like I want to help, you know, and that's that's the point It's to become aware of the problem number one like you said there are so many homeless people that we don't even know about well and yeah what can we do i mean and i don't again i don't want to interrupt you but what can we do like there's a place here they call it like a warming center and you know where you can take blankets and toothbrushes and things like that do you suggest people do that or do they give Absolutely. money or what do you think i think the first thing people have to do is see the homeless see them as see them as a person see them as somebody because homelessness makes us uncomfortable when we walk past somebody on the street who's homeless most people tend to avert their eyes and look the other way because they have a hard time seeing that person living in that condition and because of that we avoid even the idea of it talking about it because and so the first thing i think is to see and recognize number one that those are people those are our fellow human beings, our brothers and sisters that are struggling like that. And if, if you do, for example, the other day, a couple months ago, we were in a store and I noticed there was a couple sitting out front of Rite Aid that were just sitting there, you know, they were homeless. And so I went in with device and stuff, but I also bought a couple bottles of water, Gatorade and some sandwiches and gave to them on my way out, you know, and they were so grateful and they were just talking. So little things like that people can do on a daily basis. Um, okay. obviously you need to maintain safety. You know, if somebody struggles with mental illness, because a friend or whatever, you don't necessarily want to put yourself in some type of risk, but it's okay to talk to these people. You know, they're not, you yeah. know, they're, they're people. And, and I know. On, on top of that, you know, just see them as people, you know, just, and then work, like you said, you can donate to shelters or things like that, donate goods or time, you know, or money, mm-hmm. you know, whatever resources you have available try to donate and give out to, to help those people. 
Right. I want to know your thoughts on something. So I'm always driving down the road and I'll see somebody standing there and there's more people out on the road than there used to be. But let me rewind. Years ago, I was a buyer in New York and I went to New York City. This was a long time ago, probably 25 years ago. And I was with a gentleman and there was a young guy. I mean, he was really strong and he was um, panhandling and he said to me, I bet you never been homeless before. And I didn't give him any money. And the guy who was with me said, he makes more money than you do. Yeah. I think there are definitely people that try. To yeah. And then I'm advantage. like, right. And then I'm driving down the road. So let me, and then I want to know what you think. I want you to tell me what to do because not that you could tell everybody what to do, but so a lot of times I'll, if I feel it in my heart, I give, and I always say a prayer. Okay. But how do you know if they're just raking people for cash? Sorry about that. Or, yeah. it, you know what I mean? Or if it's no, legitimate, I, I, how do you know? I totally it? get it. I totally get it. I totally agree with you. Um, yeah. A couple of things with that. Number one is sometimes the people that actually really need it aren't the ones asking for it. Right. You know what I mean? That, yeah. And and number two is there are reputable organizations you can definitely work with who know who the homeless are, you know, like your local shelters and things like that. If you work and donate with them, you know that money's going to them, you know, them and the people they're serving. So that's one way to definitely do it. And then the other thing I think about that is I think, okay, if I'm giving this person a sandwich or a drink, you know, it's not really hurting me, you know, giving them a lunch. No. And at the very, at the very worst, you know, yeah, they'll eat it, maybe not need it. But on the other hand, maybe they will, but it, it's not necessarily for me to decide to judge them to say yes or no. You know what I mean? That's my mm -hmm. feeling is I'd rather be, I'd rather be on the side of being a little extra generous, mm -hmm. you know, that way than the, mm -hmm. than the opposite. Just that's my feeling, but you're right. You have to be careful. And that's why I said, if you work with reputable organizations like United way or whatever, things like, I like that, that are working. Yeah. Then, then, then you know, know yeah, I know. Cause you're like, oh, I don't know if that's such a good idea or not. Okay. So one more question before we get out of here for today, I just want to ask about the housing, the housing situation. What have you, cause I've thought about it and I've talked about it and, you know, I'd really like to see my idea is that each community get together and try to build housing for some of the homeless to help. I mean, what is your solution on this one? Or do you have one? No, I think that would be great. You know, cause the thing is right now in order to uh, prosecute somebody's homeless we spend um a, a organization will spend much more than they would spend to house them meaning like 30 to fifty thousand dollars in order to prosecute a um a homeless person for homelessness but if you went in and took that money and instead used it to get them into like an apartment or housing it would be much more effective and you know would be more helpful for that person you know and Okay. And I think we have money and the government's actually starting to do that. Like at the VA, the veterans, they, they have this great initiative the past couple of years to get all these homeless veterans because veterans are, you know, um, adversely affected with homelessness because a lot of them struggle with PTSD and things like that. So right, the, right. Vet, the Veterans Administration has developed this new program to get all these veterans that are homeless into some type of housing or home. And I think one of the things they're doing is taking some of the old military or VA facilities and converting those into, um, you know, some living facilities, or they're right. just giving them, you know, grants and things like that. See, I think an effective way is rather than give the people money is give a grant towards like the landlord or something to help them pay for the money, you know, to pay for some living. Yeah. And the Palm Beach County, one thing they do is when somebody's, um, some families at risk for homelessness is they take them and they pay like the first month's rent and deposit okay. to get them into a house, to get them into a house you know, and then they check with them periodically to make sure they're doing okay. You know, if they need a little extra to make ends meet. But um, the thing is, I think working with a combination of government and private entities, I think private entities do this very well, you know, like your mm -hmm. uh, nonprofit organizations, mm -hmm. um, they waste less money and they're more effective at getting these things done, frankly. Mm -hmm. And um, there was another organization I worked with in New York, Pennsylvania called the Cornerstone Youth Home. It was a uh, this, this, they started this home basically for the kids to stay in during the week okay. when they were homeless. Okay. And the parents, the parents, they would try to give them some job education or find them a job to stabilize them. But the kids would have somewhere to stay during the week, you know, and then the parents could come on the weekend and spend time with them. And um, it was an effective way to get these families from, you know, transitional housing or homelessness into uh, more fixed housing. Mm -hmm. And so, and I do think we could build 
small apartments fairly easily. The government has so much resources mm -hmm. that they could. The problem would be you'd also have to address their other line issues that people have such as substance abuse or mental health and make sure they're getting treatment for those things. Right. So they can so, stay in their homes. Right. As a physician, um, I guess one of the other big problems that I think is the uh, no facilities for people who do have mental issues and that, you know, crumbled many years ago. And I believe this is my feeling. I believe they need to be brought back. Um, I think people closed it because they thought people were treated inhumanely where maybe they were, but the problem is there's no facilities or there are very few facilities yeah. for the mental ill at this point. You yeah. Know? And for them to get treatment, it's very difficult for somebody, for example, su uh, suffering schizophrenia on the street mm -hmm. for them to get treated for that. But if you were able to treat their underlying illness, they may not be on the street anymore, you know, or, or for substance abuse, you know, treat that substance abuse and get them, into some rehabilitation facility, then you get them through that point and then they can kind of become more self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I'm so glad you wrote this book. You guys, it's called Homeless to Hopkins. If people want to get in touch with you, I mean, Henley, do you have a website? Do you have an email or how do people find you? Yeah, so I have all the above. So okay. um, if someone wants to email, they can email me homeless to Hopkins at gmail.com. I made a simple email. Wonderful. My website, I have a website called homeless to Hopkins.com. Um, I also have a personal blog I do called Christopher Smith, MD author. It's just a blog site where I, where I blog and kind of talk about um, parenting ideas and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but they can email me or like I said, on the website, you know, check out the website. Um, Email is probably the easiest way, homelesshopkins.com. I mean, okay. homelesshopkins at gmail.com. Okay. Um, and my book is also available on Audible. I don't know if I mentioned that. And, um, you know, if somebody wants to listen to it on Audible. And the children's so, book, there's a children's book as well. The children's book, yes. And so my children's book's a little bit differently written. As you said, it's more to kind of, parts of have like a dialogue with the kids, you know, I'm, you know, kind of saying, you know, I know you're struggling and this is difficult right now, but it's okay. Life can get better, you know, things like that. And encourage those kids to get help when they're struggling, you know, things like that. And so, mm -hmm. and, and I would love it because most children's books are all kind of a lot of fluff and happiness, which is great, but sometimes these kids are going through some really difficult times and, you know, I think it's okay to, you know, talk about, you know, these things like if you're going through this, get some help, you know, find some help, find a teacher, find a, you know, religious leader, talk to your parents, you know, talk to your parents for help. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Hey, fabulous. I'm so glad you came on the home, came on the show today. Dr. Christopher Smith, you guys homeless to Hopkins. Thanks for coming on Christopher. Thank you. Thank you I so really much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Hey, you guys, this is Nancy Earl. This is High Road to Humanity. Everybody have a terrific week and God bless. Take care.